Welcome to this week's Rashi Shear, brought to you from the Bet Midrash of Mizrahi in Melbourne, Australia. So, good evening. We are back inside the Mizrahi Bet Midrash. It is very nice to be here. Um, and to those joining on Zoom and to those listening in the podcast sometime in the future, I hope you enjoy the share. We are in Perak Lamad and we are on Pasuk Kaf Gimel, um, which really follows on directly from Pasuk Kaf Bet. So let's remember what Pasuk Kaf Bet said. Elokim et Rachel. Hashem remembered Rachel. Elokim. And Hashem listened to her. et Rachma. And he opened her womb. In other words, she was able to have children. And we talked about what Rashi said about that and why there's two aspects to what Hashem saw. He saw, he remembered the deed that Rachel had done and given the simanim, in the signs to her sister, and that she was troubled with the fear that she would have to separate, be divorced from Yaakov and end up in the lot of Esau. And now we go on to Pasuk Kaf Gimel. So after we've learned that Hashem opened her womb, the Tahar, she conceived, the tailed ben, and she bore a son, the tomer asaf elokim et ercher pati. Hashem has, well, asaf, Rashi's going to tell us what that means, my insult or my shame. So what does asaf mean? And how is Hashem asafed, if you pardon the uh, grammar, the cherpa? So the words Rashi says on asaf, hichnisa b'makom shalotera er. He's brought it into a place where it cannot be seen. In other words, it's hidden. Although it's not quite hidden, it's a little bit more precise than that. And then Rashi brings quite a large number, one, two, three, four examples of how we see asaf to mean brought into a place where it's hidden. So he starts with Yeshayahu in Perik Dalad Pasuk Aleph. And it's interesting that he, the first one is from Nach and the second one is from Chumash. And the first one from Nach, um, in times of distress, when there won't be many men to go round to marry women, seven women will want to marry one man, and they will say, this is Ersaf Kherpateinu, it's removed or hidden our shame. Same as, pretty much the same words that Rachel uses. And the second one is, this is um, reference to the plague of Barad, that all the animals that are out in the field and are not hidden away in the house, they're going to be struck. Um, maybe <coughs> Rashi uses a quote from Nach before he uses a quote from Chumash, which is not usual because Chumash you know, always takes precedence because the quote he uses from the Chumash is so precisely, sorry, from the Nach, so precisely fits to Alwan. It's got the word Cherepa and it's about women marrying people and, uh, and therefore removing their Cherepa and Rachel's fear was that she would end up being married to Esau. So there's a very close connection between the Pasuk in Yishayahu and our Pasuk. And maybe that's why Rashi puts that example first. The next one is from Yoel, Asfu Nagham, talking about the sun and moon will keep going and their, the light of the stars will not be Asfu, which is hidden away. Uh, and the last one is the Rechef Yotlo Yasef, the sun and the moon will not be hidden away. As then Rashi to conclude, lo yitamai, <coughs> they will not be hidden away. Now the point is the word asaf really has two meanings, which are related. One is to, <coughs> pardon me, 
gather together in one place. And the other is to gather together in a place which is hidden. So they're not totally different, but there is a different nuance. So Rashi needs to tell us which one it means here. And it doesn't make sense to say gather together in a single place. Uh, when when um, Rachel says, Asef Elohim et Cherpati, doesn't mean he's gathered my shame into one place. It must mean he's gathered it into a place where it won't be seen. He's hidden it away. And Rashi, um, bringing four examples to prove it, is telling you it means that's the meaning of Asaf, in case you wondered which of the two common meanings it has. And now, what does Rachel mean by Kherpati? Says Rashi, that I was shamed, that I was infertile. And uh, people would say of me that I would end up in the portion of Esau, the wicked one. As we saw in the previous Pasuk, we saw in last week's share, that there was a real concern that because she was infertile, Yaakov would divorce her and then she would end up marrying the other brother. Two sisters would marry two brothers, exactly what Leah was afraid of, which is why her eyes were soft, because she was crying all the time, but it might end up, Rachel thought it might end up being her who marries um, Esau. And that's the Cherpah, that's the, uh, so Rashi says there's two things. Number one, that she's Akara, she's barren, and number two, that she's heading for the lot of, of Esau. And then Rashi brings the Agada a story, or he doesn't use the word midrash, but he, he means it's a midrashic interpretation. And I have to say, it's very, very strange. Let's see what it says. All the time that a woman doesn't have a son, she doesn't have anyone on whom to literally hang her disgrace. But when she has a son, Tola Bo, she can hang her disgrace on him. What does that mean? Rashi's going to tell you. When she's asked, Mi Shiber who broke this vessel? She can answer, Bincha, your son. Mi who ate these figs? She can answer, Bincha, your son. So if she's the sort of wife who breaks plates and eats figs when there's, you know, she takes the last fig. And her husband says, you have broken the plate. She can say, no, it wasn't me. It was the baby. And she, the baby also ate the figs. And that is how her cherpa, her disgrace, her shame is removed. I have to say, very strange. Um, let's just sort of analyze why Rashi needs more than one explanation. So we can say, for instance, that um, the first explanation doesn't really explain the word asaf. Um, as in hidden away her shame, it should say the word hesir, um, which is like removed, that would have been a better word. Um, but also the second explanation um, fits nicely with the next verse, because the next verse says that she wants another son. Having had one son, her main expectation is to have another son. So Rashi will give a particular explanation of why she wants another son. But this explanation here explains why she wants another son, because this idea of relying on the child as the excuse, the alibi for why the plate was broken or the figs were eaten only works when the child is very young. 
like a baby. As soon as the child grows a bit, then she won't be able to blame the child for breaking the plate and she'll be back in a state of cherpa, in a state of shame. So this explanation, and, and I think this is probably the best answer to why Rashi brings it, explains the next verse, which we haven't seen yet, where immediately Rachel's focus is on having another son. She's had one son, but it means she wants another son, um, which gives rise to the name of the son whom she's just had, which we will see in a moment soon. So Rashi brings this Agadah, um, perhaps to explain why it's not just one son that she wants, but she wants another son so that she can have an infant at home on whom to blame such accidents, such sort of misdemeanors. Um, but I do want to share with you something I saw in the name of Chaim Shmulevitz. Chaim Shmulevitz, the great Baal Musa, author of Sichot Musa, he says the following. We might feel the absence. Sorry, let me go back. What, what, he's answering the question, which I certainly have, and I think we all have, is, what's Rashi saying? Is, why is Rachel bothered, so bothered about being blamed for breaking a plate and now having an excuse that uh, to say it wasn't me who broke the plate, it was a child. It's not clear from Rashi whether that excuse is factual or not. Maybe it means the child did break the plate, that, that's what happened. Or maybe it means she's blaming the child for her own accident. Rechaim Shmulevitz says, we may feel the absence of major contention between these issues um, as of no significance, because our estimation of appropriate shalom bias is the absence of major issues. Everyone expects the little issues to be present in even the best of marriages and therefore don't pay much heed to them. In other words, part of our surprise is that Rachel is bothered by such minor things. Who, who can imagine that it's a big problem if a plate gets broken? Plates always get broken. Do you know what sometimes? Sometimes partners reach a disagreement about broken plates. It happens. Does that mean that marriage is on the rocks? Does that mean there's a lack of shalom bias? Most of us would say no, because we think when there's a lack of shalom bias, it means the big things. It means the, the big issues. But nobody worries about a broken plate or even a disagreement about a broken plate. Rav Shmulevitz says that husband and wife cannot, uh, that for Rachel and Lyakov, the bar was set much higher. Their unity and their relationship was so strong and so close that even a seemingly trivial matter such as a broken dish that to others would not even register, to them was an impediment to the near perfect relationship. It was worthwhile to eliminate even such a minor irritant. So I, I, I'm not suggesting that's a full answer to the question of this, this very odd comment, but I think it gives a quite beautiful perspective that things that we might see minor in Rachel's mind were worth mentioning because they weren't minor, because their marriage was on such a level that even a minor, as he puts it, a minor irritant was something of significance where it wouldn't be to us. And perhaps that's, that sheds at least a perspective on what Rashi is saying. Okay, Pasuk Kaf Dalet, Betikra et Shemo Yosef Lemor Yosef Hashem Li Ben Acher. She called his name Yosef to say, Hashem should add to me another child. Now, what's interesting is that, whereas in every other case, each of the Imahat describes something, which was like a, some reference to what's going to be the name of the child who's just been born. 
And they said, and therefore the name is such. We see here in Pasuk Kafdalat that Rachel is naming her child Yosef in response, in respect of Yosef Hashem Li Ben Acher. Hashem should give me another child. And the bit about um, where she said previously, Asaf Elokim et Cherpati seems to be ignored. So we're told two things, and only the second is relevant. So why are we told the first? If she's called, if the child's called Yosef because of Yosef Li Hashem Ben Acher, Hashem should give me an extra child. What was all that bit about Asaf Elokim et Cherpati? So I would suggest, uh, sorry, before we go on, it, it, it seems remarkable coincidence that the other word, which is not used, is very similar. It's not quite got the same root. The root is Aleph Samach Pei, but it's pretty close to Yosef, which is Yud Samach Pei. Um, so is there a connection? And I would suggest there is a connection. I would suggest also that that's the, the odd Rashi that we've just learned. The odd Rashi explains why Asaf Cherpati because she, the little child can be blamed for the broken plate, leads also, as I said, Russia doesn't say this explicitly, but it seems obvious, leads also to the request for another child. So the Yosef Li Ben Acher, may Hashem, as I said earlier, sorry, uh, may Hashem give me another child, is a consequence of the Asaf Cherpati. So the Asaf and the Yosef are intrinsically connected anyway. So when she calls him Yosef, it's also echoing the Asaf et Cherpati as well, because of the way they are connected in the way that we suggested that she needs another child, another infant, to blame for the next broken plate. But having said all that, Rashi gives another explanation of Ben Acher. She says, on the words Ben Acher, Rashi says, Yoda'at hayta b'nevuah she'ein Yaakov ma'amid ela yudbet. She knew in a prophetic way that Yaakov is only going to raise 12 sons. Uh, we've said before, but the Imahat were in the Viot, as Rashi said explicitly. And Rashi has used this idea to explain why um, Leah was happy to get four, which is more than her share, which is 12 divided by four, which would have been three. Why when Leah gets to six, she's halfway. And why she wants uh, her child when she was pregnant with the seventh time to be a girl so that um, Rachel will have at least two, et cetera, et cetera. All the way along, Rashi has explained that the Imahat knew there was going to be a total of 12. So Rachel also knows there's going to be a total of 12, and we're up to 11. So there's only one more to go. Um, so therefore, Amra continues Rashi. She said, Yehi ratzon sha'oto shahu atid ha'amid od. May it be Hashem's will that that extra, the last child, who in the future is going to be literally raised up, Yehiyeh hemeini that he should be from me. Therefore, she only davened for one child. So Rashi actually answered at least two things, I think. Number one, why she asked for another child at all. It, it's a funny thing. It's a funny thing when she's just been given this wonderful blessing of having a child, her focus to the extent that she even names the child, is if to say, it's not enough, I want more. So we've explained why she says that. But also, as Rashi himself says, if she's going to ask for more, then you would have thought, naturally, if you didn't see this Rashi, she'd ask for lots more. Her sister's got six. Of course she's gonna want more than two. Everyone's want more than two. So she, why Rashi explains why it's only Ben Acher and not Banim Acherim, 
So with this comment of Rashi, we've answered those two questions. Why she focuses on the next child, because she wants to make so, sure that the 12th and final one also comes from her and is only going, and why only one? Because there's only going to be one more child. Okay, so we have now 11 children, sorry, 11 sons and one daughter. The 12th is going to be born quite a lot later, towards the end of Pasha's Bayishlach. So we'll uh, uh, pause for a moment with all the sons. And indeed, the story now moves in a different direction. And it says in Pasuk Kafhe, Vayehi ka'asher yalada Rachel et Yosef, vayome Yaakov elavan shalcheni. And it was when Rochel bore Yosef, Yaakov said to Lavan, send me for Elcha, and I will go El Mokomi to my place and to my land. Now, so Rochel, Yaakov has been there how long? 14 years. He's worked seven years for Rochel. Then he had to work seven years again for Rochel. And the children were born in this space of time, in the second seven years. So we've now come to the end. It's now 14 years. So Yaakov says, no, I want to go. But there are two things that we have to note about the Pasuk before we turn to Rashi. Number one, why does the Pasuk connect the birth of Yosef with Yaakov saying it's time to go? If Yaakov has finished his 14 years, then it's time to go anyway. Um, it is rare that the Torah tells us a precise time frame or a precise link to an event or a link between two events. So the, the, the comment here is really sort of uh, standing out as saying there's something that connects the birth of Yosef with the time for Yaakov to go. And there's something else which is missing, which I think I'll leave for a moment. Let's see what Rashi says. Ka'asher yalda Rachel et Yosef. So Rashi goes straight in on this phrase, which is the one that needs explanation. Why does the Torah say, when Rachel gave birth to Yosef? When the opposer of, of Esau was born, i.e. Yosef. Yosef is the opponent of Esau. How do we know that? Because we have a Pasuk in Avadya. Avadya is an interesting Navi. Um, he was a Ger. He was a descendant of Esau. And he makes reference in his Navua to Esau, who was his own ancestor. Uh, he's also lots more to the story of Avadia, but that doesn't need to concern us now. But the Pasuk, in Perak Aleph, Pasuk Yudchet of Avadia says, Beit Yaakov Eish, or Beit Yosef Lahava. And then it goes on to say, um, I forget the exact words, Esev Lakash, that Yaakov, the house of Yaakov is fire, the house of Yosef is flame, and the house of Esav is stubble, as in what's left after you've taken away the corn. Now, what does fire do to stubble? It destroys it. Um, but what do you need? Well, let's, what do you, uh, as Rashi says, Aish below lahava, fire without flame, eino sholet mirachok, does not take hold, does not rule at a distance. Mishanolad Yosef batach, but from when Yosef was born, he was sure, i.e. Yaakov was assured that he'd be safe because now he's got Yosef, and he wanted now to return. So we've said the question that Rashi is answering and Rashi makes clear is what's the Kashe Yalda Rachel Yosef all about? Why is it the birth of Yosef that enables Yaakov to say, I want to go home? 
So the answer is, he's been afraid of Esau. He's always afraid of Esau. And although he is compared in the Pasuk to Aish, and Aish is able to destroy stubble, and therefore he's already got the power to vanquish Esau. Nevertheless, it's Yosef who literally, or in, in, the, in the metaphor, not literally, is the flame which ignites the fire, or that's not quite what Rashi puts it. The way Rashi puts it is fire without, it's, it's hard to imagine what is fire without flame. Because once there's fire, it has been ignited. But Rashi says, fire without flame, will not take hold of it from a distance. So the, the, the idea is fire is something that's localized, but a flame, uh, like you know, imagine a flamethrower, can move the fire fast and to a distance. And it's worth pointing out that when Yaakov encounters Asof, he's going to meet Asof, and they're going to be physically close together. But for the rest of his life, except for perhaps one instance, uh, the burial of Yitzchak, they live far apart. In fact, Asof goes to Har Seir, which is a long way. It's Edom, it's outside Eretz Israel, so there's a distance between them. But without Yosef to be the flame that fans the fire, that gives it the opportunity to be Sholet Merachok, to rule even from a distance, then the distance between Esau and Yaakov would not itself be a protection to Yaakov. Only now there is Yosef, that Yaakov is a shorter protection, even when Esau is far away. Now, what is this idea about Yosef? And especially, it's interesting to note that at this moment, Yosef is a baby. Um, but the very fact that he's been born gives Yaakov that sense of protection. By the way, according to the Malbim, this whole idea of Beit Yosef Lahava refers to the time in the future, and Beit Yosef refers to Mashiach ben Yosef. So we have this idea, it's a little bit mystical, that before Mashiach ben David will be Mashiach ben Yosef, who will fight against the forces of the enemy, particularly Esau, and damage him, and then Mashiach ben Yosef, sorry, Mashiach ben David will come in and sort of finish the job. Um, so there's, there's, there's this idea, which, as I say, we, well, I'm not pretending to fully understand, that Yosef in particular is the, the one who can vanquish Esau. But let's go see, see what some of the Mephoshim on Rashi have to say to explain this. Um, the Maharal says something, I'm not sure I understand this, that Yaakov was obviously superior to Esau, but he wasn't able to defeat Esau because they came from the same womb, obviously. But uh, Yosef is the essence of Yaakov. We'll talk more about that in a minute, but he didn't come from the same womb. So he's got the strength of Yaakov without, if you like, the weakness of Yaakov, which prevents Yaakov from destroying Esau. But Yosef um, is able to do that. He doesn't, he's not born in the same womb as Esau, but he does inherit the um, essence of his father, Yosef. How do I know that? Because Rashi on Perak Mamad Zion Pasuk Bet at the beginning of Vayeshev, where it says, Ela told that Yaakov, Yosef, these are the generations of Yaakov, Yosef. And Rashi says that the Pasuk said, says that because Yosef is the essence of Yaakov. And when we get to Pasha's Vayeshev in a while, not so far, in a while, um, we will understand more uh, and we'll see that Rashi about how there were many things in the life of Yosef which is compatible to the life of, of Yaakov. And also, Rashi says there that the Torah that Yaakov learned when he was in the yeshiva of Eva is the Torah that he passed to Yosef in particular. So we see that Yosef sort of absorbs the Yaakovness of Yaakov, but he's not so closely related to Esau. So Yosef is the one who can 
fight and defeat Esau. Um, the Seidel Derech says that at the end of his life, at the end of Yaakov's life, the brachat that Yaakov received from Yitzchak, he transferred to Yosef. Well, when we get, that will take a long time to get Parshas uh, Vayechi to talk about that. But that is basically, to some extent, what happened. Right? It's always unclear what is the nature of that bracha. But Yaakov, Yosef got something special. He got a double portion. He got a burial place. He got the brachot that Yaakov took from Yitzchak, which those brachot were destined, of course, for Esau. So perhaps we can understand this idea by saying that the, um, by the brachot being transferred ultimately from Esau to Yosef is why Yosef becomes the protagonist and the defeater of Esau. Uh, another idea, which I thought was rather nice, is what was Esau's great merit? What gave him a little bit of sukhut, enough sukhut to sort of sustain him? The mitzvah of kibbud av, that he honored his father. Who else honored his father? Yosef. How did Yosef honor his father? When his father Yaakov said, I want to send you off to see the brothers um, at the beginning of Vayeshev, Yosef knew that it wasn't going to be hunky-dory. Yosef knew that the brothers and he had a little bit of a falling out. Uh, and it might be dangerous to go and see them. But nevertheless, when his father said, where are you, Yosef? He said, Hineni, off I go. So Yosef also demonstrated Kibbut Av, just like Esau did. So therefore, Yosef is the one who can take on Esau. Now, what is missing from this parsha, from this pasuk, or from this part of the story? And it's suggested that this is also being hinted at by Rashi. When should Yaakov return home? Any thoughts? When his mother sends for him. His mother, at the end of Parsha Toldot, Rivka said, go away and stay away until your brother's anger has cooled down. And later on, when Yaakov does return home, there's a suggestion that Rivka sends him a message to say, no, it's time to come home. We'll see what that is later. But at this point, Rivka hasn't sent him any message. So what's he doing? Saying, I want to go home. So Rashi answers that by saying, he now doesn't need to wait for the message that Esau's anger has called because he's got Yosef. So Rashi explains why he's now ready, not just to go home, but Dafka to stand up against Esau, which is what he has to be ready to do in order to go home, because that's what his mother said. Right. So he says to Lavan, He says to Lavan, send me and I will go to my place and to my land. And then he continues to say, Tana et Nashai, this is Pasuk Kavav, give me my wives, Ve'et Yeladai, and my children, Asher Avadati Otach Bahen, whom I worked with you, I worked for you for them. And I will go. Because now you know the work that I worked for you. Now, Rashi has just one line, uh, just a few words, really explaining one word. On the word Tana, which means give, as in give me my wives. I do not want to go except with permission. So if we take out the rabbinic double negative, I only want to go with permission. So what's Rashi doing? So I think Rashi's doing two things. The first is, 
um, explaining something a little bit odd. Why does he say, give me my wives? Where do you think his wives are? His wives are with him. He doesn't need uh, Yaakov, sorry, um, 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 Lavan to release them. Now, I know it sounds a little bit gendered to say so that he's in charge of his wives, but that's probably the case. But certainly Lavan is not in charge of his wives. Lavan is not in charge of his children. Um, we don't quite know about domestic arrangements, um, but we know that Rachel had her tent and Leah had her tent, and sometimes Yaakov was with one, sometimes Yaakov was with the other. We learned that with the whole Dudaim story, and the children seem to be all around, and, and we'll see later in a, in a couple of psukim that the children are working with Yaakov. Um, so it's clear that it's not that if Lavan is holding them hostage, God forbid. So why does Yaakov say, give them to me? So Rashi answers that by saying he's being polite. He's saying, please give me permission to go. I'm not physically asking you to give me my wives because I don't need you to give me my wives. But therefore, says Rashi, he's asking to go with permission. And in fact, you could say that Rashi's doing something else here. He's actually translating the word batana. So I've said it means give. Give in the sense of, uh, in, in the context of asking for permission. But maybe we can actually say that Tana means permit, like let me go. Maybe Rashi is saying that's actually the translation of Tana. Because, so in other words, the two things I'm saying are slightly different. The first is Tana means give. And why is Rashi asking Yatlavan to give? Answer, because he's seeking permission. Or Tana actually means permit. So he's not asking Lavan to give, because that doesn't make sense. He's asking Lavan to permit. Uh, and also, um, I think it's also Rashi's making clear that this Pasuk is a continuation of the previous one. In other words, the words of Yaakov to Lavan started at the end of Kafe, Shalcheni, send me, and that's followed by Tana et Nashai, give me my wives. It's all about Lavan showing that he is subservient to Lavan because he's a decent uh, employee, um, not a servant, not a slave, certainly, but he's, he's subservient to Lavan. So he starts by saying, Shalcheni, please send me. Of course, he could just get up and go, as he actually does at the end, but he is being polite and courteous and showing the Derech that he should and that we should learn from him. So he says, Shalcheni, asking permission that Lavan should send him and that Tana at Nashai is the continuation of the same mood. Please um, allow me to take my wives and children and allow me to go. And then we come to Pasuk Kaf Zion. You're all welcome to make comments. You know, we have this live interface now. So you're, you're very welcome to, you don't have to like go off mute. So, uh, and um, I don't need to be talking all the time. So please feel free to comment and uh, contribute. But if you're not going to, we'll go to Pasuk Kaf Zion. <laughs> So Lavan's response, by the way, Lavan never says yes or no. We've seen this before. Um, he doesn't say, okay, you can go. Nor does he say, I'm not letting you go. But he doesn't want him to go. And indeed, they come to an arrangement where he doesn't go. And he stays for another six years, which is what we're about to, uh, to encounter. But Lavan introduces his response by this. Lavan said to him, if I found favor in your eyes, which is a fancy way of saying please, I have divined, I have used divination, divination, sorry, and Hashem has blessed me for your sake. In other words, just to rephrase it, I have worked out, and we'll talk about how he's worked out in a minute, 
that it's good for me that you're here. Hashem blesses me because you're here. And therefore, I don't want you to go. And therefore, let's reach a deal. Uh, and this is just the beginning of the conversation. The, the next few psukim are equally crucial and equally part of the discussion. But let's see what Rashi says on Nichashti. So he says, Menachesh. Now, the next word appears in different editions as either Haya or Hayiti. So Menachesh is a diviner, somebody who uses special arts to work out what's going on in some sort of uh, hidden way. So if it means Menachesh Haya, Rashi said he was a diviner, um, which I actually think is probably more authentic looking at the uh, original manuscripts. But if it says Menachesh Hayiti, which we do find in some versions, then Rashi is saying that he's not just a one-off, I have divined, but I am, he's putting it in the words of um, Lavan, I have been a diviner. It's like who I am, it's part of me. Um, and maybe that will be relevant for the end of the story, the final blow up between Yaakov and Lavan, and maybe that will be relevant there. Maybe not. Continues Rashi. Nisiti Banachash Shali, I have tested through my divination, that through you has come a blessing. Now, it's interesting, in the very next verse, or the one after actually, Yaakov talks about the, um, yeah, Yaakov talks about how the flocks have grown to a great extent, from a small beginning to a big beginning. Um, and that's obviously part of the bracha, or one might have thought, but it's not what Rashi identifies as the bracha. So when Lavan says, Hashem, Hashem has blessed me, Rashi gives an explanation of what that blessing is, and it's not about the growth of the flock, which we will discuss in a moment. So what is it? Keshabat Lakan, when you came here, this is Rashi putting it into the words of Lavan, Lavan says to Yaakov, when you came here, lo hayu li banim, I did not have sons. How do we know he didn't have sons? Shneemar, as the verse said, when Yaakov first arrived in Haran, and he said to the shepherds, do you know Lavan? And they said, yes. And they said, Rachel, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the flock, says Rashi. Is it possible that somebody has sons and he sends his daughter out amongst the shepherds? Now, I think the implication is um, it's not a nice place for a young girl to be um, doing her shepherding stuff amidst all the other shepherds. They're probably a bit rough and ready, and it's probably not a very nice environment. And therefore, the only reason that he would send his daughter is if he only has daughters. And therefore, we conclude that he didn't have sons at that point. Continues Rashi, Achshav Hayulabanim. But now he did have sons. How do we know that? Shneemar, as it says in the next chapter, that Yaakov heard the words of the sons of Lavan. And he heard not nice things, and he decided it was time to go. So Rashi has proved that originally he had no sons when Yaakov arrived. How do we know that? Because he sent Rachel out to do the shepherding. And now he does have sons because there's a specific reference to sons. So that, says Rashi, is the bracha 
that Lavan identifies that Hashem has brought him. Okay, there's lots of things to say about this, Rashi. Um, I think just by the way, so just, just to point here, point out that you might say that Rachel coming with the sheep, you might say it doesn't prove there were no sons. It might have been a one-off. Um, maybe there were sons, but they had an off day or they, they were down the pub or something on that day and they sent their sister Rachel with the flock. It doesn't work because the Pasuk said uh, in Peirat Kaftet, Pasuk Tet, Ki he, that Rachel was a shepherd. I'm going to use the word shepherdess, even though we don't really say that anymore, but, but it's important to say it at this point. The Pasuk says she was a shepherdess. It wasn't she was you know, doing the locum job while her brothers were absent. She was a shepherdess. So Rashi is entitled to say that this shows Rachel coming with the flock, not just on one occasion, but the Pasuk tells us it was a general uh, thing to do, shows that there were no sons. Now, I want to go back to the beginning of Rashi. What does he mean, the Hashtim? And I want to say, I, I think there's at least two meanings. One is that Nahashti doesn't mean Dafka, that he had some secret magic wand and uh, did some sort of trick, but it could mean that he just worked it out. Nahashti, I think, can also mean he worked it out. And actually, Nasiti, but Nahashali, using the words of Rashi, I tested with my Nahash. Um, I think can possibly mean what we would today call scientific method, that he like tested um, using a controlled experiment. What happens in this case with Yaakov's presence? What happens in this case without Yaakov's presence? That could be what Nachashti meant. Um, and that's sort of suggested by the Yafet To'ar commentary on Rashi. However, it probably doesn't mean that. And it probably means Nachashti, I use some sort of magic trick, or somebody says, I used a Bodhazara. We know that Lavan was a worshiper of Bodhazara. He had his own personal house gods called Terafim, which Rachel stole in their last encounter. So it makes sense that, Yaakov, that Lavan was using some sort of um, uh, a Bodhazara related divination to reach his conclusion. Um, the next thing to say is the point I mentioned earlier that this bit about not having sons and now having sons seems to be an odd thing for Rashi to stress as Lavan is stressing when the much more obvious bracha is the growth in the flock, which Yaakov is going to talk about and say, when I came, there were very few. And now Harot Florov, they've broken through to a multitude. So why does Rashi say that Lavan is identifying the bit about not having sons and now having sons and not identifying the growth of the flock? And by the way, as I say this, it occurs to me that not having sons and now having sons is, is a bracha, but you know, it could just be you know, the, way, the way the dice roll. It could be not so significant. Sometimes you have sons, sometimes you have daughters, sometimes you do have children, sometimes you don't have children. Um, it just seems to me, and, and I think this is part of the question I'm about to answer, um, an obscure thing to identify as the bracha when there could be much more obvious things. So the simple answer is that Rashi needs to mention one bracha in his perush because the other bracha is mentioned explicitly in the Pasuk. So Rashi is like filling in what the Pasuk doesn't. Rashi doesn't need to repeat what the Pasuk is going to say. Um, you can also say uh, um, that Lavan doesn't want to mention the sheep. This, this, this Rashi is putting words into the mouth of Lavan. And maybe Lavan's got a reason for not wanting to say, Hashem has blessed me because of you. He's given me lots more sheep because that would encourage, that, that would be a, a 
cause for Yaakov to demand more payment for what he's achieved. And we know that Yaakov is a trickster. Rashi's made that very, very clear. So Lavan doesn't want to give Yaakov cause to demand more payment. So maybe that's why Rashi says that Yaakov, Lavan doesn't mention something which is directly the work of, of Yaakov, but it's something that's happened to be coincidental with Yaakov arriving, namely the children. Um, says the Mizrahi, um, I'm not sure, again, I'm not sure if I fully understand this, especially because of what we're going to read in the next couple of Pesukim, but the Mizrahi said, uh, what I've just been saying, that surely it's a bigger bracha to refer to the growth of the flocks, Mr. Mizrahi, not necessarily. Sometimes flocks grow and sometimes they don't. So there are good years, there are not so good years. Maybe in Yaakov's time, we don't know exactly each year, was there a, a continuous progression? Or maybe some years were good and some years were bad. Maybe it's not so obvious empirically that the growth of the flocks was a bracha from Hashem. Um, the Maharal says, Nechashti cannot refer to something which is obvious. It can only refer to something which you like have to make a deal, you have to work out. So says the Maharal, lots of sheep, that's obvious. You don't need divination to know that there's been a bracha when Yaakov's here, when you can see that the flock has multiplied so many times. But to take something which is not so obviously a bracha, the fact that I now have sons, and say that's because of Yaakov's presence, that fits with the idea of nechashti. I've worked it out. I've worked out something which is not obvious. I've used my secret arts, or maybe I've used my scientific method to reach that conclusion, says the Maharal, that can refer to something which is not obvious. And that's why Rashi, this, this whole story about no sons and now sons, rather than the growth of the sheep, um, which I think actually makes a lot of sense. Says Pasuk Kafchet, Vayomer, he said, so Lavan says, Nakva sechoracha alai ve'etena. Nakva, which Rashi will explain, sechoracha means your payment, alai on me, ve'etena, and I will give. I just noticed, um, and Rashi doesn't say this, so I'm just going to leave a problem without an answer, why we need another Vayomer. Vayomer in classical Hebrew introduces another person speaking, Classical Hebrew doesn't have inverted commas like we do. So the way it says one person stopped talking, another person started talking with the word Vayomer. Um, and it's interesting, if I've read it right, that Lavan is speaking in Pasuk Kafzain and Lavan carries on speaking in Pasuk Kafchek. So there's a little question why we need Vayomer at the beginning of Pasuk Kafchek. I'll leave that to wonder about. Um, Rashi tells us, he says, Nakva. Now, again, um, different girsa'ot in Rashi. Some will say katargumo, and some will not say katargumo. But either way, Rashi is quoting the targum with the words perash agarcha. Now, what is perash? As in perush, as in to speak beferush. It means to specify. Specify your salary. Now, I don't think Rashi needs the word agarcha to translate tzcharacha, because we all know what tzcharacha means. But he's quoting the two-word phrase that comes from the Targum, because it gives a better translation than the original nakva. What's the problem of nakva? It's a very obscure word. And I don't know how often it occurs. I'm going to show you one other example. But it may be that it doesn't occur very often. And as I say this, and I preface what I'm about to say by saying I'm taking a risk. I think it is a straightforward Rashi. 
It's a straightforward Rashi. He's telling you what the obscure word means. Nakva is an obscure word. He's telling you it means perish. It means specify, say clearly, state plainly. Um, where else do you find it? Well, one place is Vayikra Perak Kaftalad Pasuk Yud Aleph at the end of Parshat Emor, the story of the blasphemer. So the blasphemer who, according to Rashi, argued that because his father was Egyptian, his mother was Jewish, uh, which tribe he should be identified with. And he went to the tribe of Dan, which is where his mother was from, and they threw him out. This is all Rashi's backstory. But then the Pasuk says, Vayikra Kaftalad Yud Aleph, Vayikov Ben HaIsha HaYisraelit Et Hashem. The son of the Jewish woman, Vayikov, whatever that means, the name of Hashem. Well, we know what that means now, because Rashi has pointed out to the Targum here, and by the way, the Targum there uses the same translation. It says, Ufaresh, means the blasphemer specified the name of Hashem. He said clearly the name of Hashem with the proper words, with the proper pronunciation. Not, uh, he didn't say Hashem or Adonai, he said the name of Hashem. And that's what Vayikov means over there. So here, Nakva also means the same thing. Say explicitly, state your wages. And Rashi has translated the word Nakva for us with a word that we understand. Sarah, do you want to say something? You look. Uh, <laughs> I was just thinking about, um, it's more mishmeg than like Tom Wooden, the din shall pierce the mountain. Yeah, and then like, so I wonder if there is a connection. It uh, sounds like to like it does sound like, yes. Yeah. To cut a hole is like to be specific. Well, yeah. sort of. We can imagine there's a sort of that what line from one to the other. Yeah. One to the other. Yeah. Let's go a little bit further in the story. So, Pasuk Kavtet, Vayoma Elav, he said to him, so now this is um, Yaakov saying to Esau, sorry, sorry, to Lavan, Ata yadata et asher avaraticha, you know how I worked for you, ve'et asher haya miknecha iti, and how the flock was with me. You know all that. What, what is it that the flock was with me? Um, says Rashi, ve'et asher haya miknecha iti, et cheshbon miut miknecha sheba liadi mitchila kama hayu. The small amount of your flock that came to me at the beginning, how much it was. That's what you know. You know, et asher haya miknecha iti. Now, what's Rashi refuting? What else could that mean? So it could mean how the flock was with me, sounds like how I tended the flock, how I looked after it, how I did a super job looking after your flock. But it can't mean that. Why can't it mean that? Because that's already covered in the first part of the Pasuk. That's when it says, is something else. So if avaraticha clearly refers to Yaakov's labor, and his excellent workmanship, then must mean something else. So Rashi says it doesn't refer to the work, it refers to the small number of flocks of sheep that there were at the beginning. Interestingly, Rashi puts in the word mitchila to stress that there aren't a small number of flocks now. 
Now there's a big number of flocks, as we're about to say. So mitchila means the flock was a long time ago, it was very small. The other thing um, is what Rashi is doing is showing how Pasuk Kaftet leads into Pasuk Lamad. Um, because Pasuk Lamad, uh, as you'll see, we'll, we'll, we'll just do that one, is, is really the continuation of this phrase that Yaakov is saying, um, according to Rashi. So because Pasuk Lamad says, Ki ma'at asher haya lacha lifanai, because they were few before, it was to you, before me, you had only a few before me, and they have burst through to a multitude. That's quite a powerful expression of considerable growth. And Hashem has blessed you by my feet, Rashi will explain. And now, what will I do, also me, for my house? So Rashi's going to explain those words. Um, but first of all, he explains luragli. It literally means to my feet, which is a strange expression. But it doesn't mean that. It's idiomatic for something else. Says Rashi, luragli, imragli, with my feet. Now, again, two versions. You might have different ones in your chumash, so I will do both. One version is ba'it. Um, I'm sorry, ba'at habracha etzlacha. With my feet has come the bracha to you. Or Rashi says, bishvil biat ragli ba'at etzlacha habracha. Basically, does he add the phrase bishvil biat ragli or not? Um, because of the coming of my feet, um, the bracha has come to you. So I don't think it's hugely significant whether we have the words bishvil, biat, ragli or not. Either way, Rashi is saying, luragli means the time that I came, when my feet came. Now, what does it mean when my feet came? Well, it's a simple metaphor because feet move the body. The feet is the first part of the body to come. It's interesting and perhaps it's significant that Lavan says the bracha was because of you, biklalecha. Yaakov, because he's Yaakov, um, he's an Adam Gadol, doesn't take the credit for himself. And he says it in a very roundabout way. He doesn't say it's because of me. It's just happened since I came. And he doesn't even say since I came. He says since my feet came. As if, you know, it's quite incidental, the rest of me as well. So luragli means since the time that I came. Now, Rashi needs to prove that ragli, luragli means since I moved in your direction. And he brings two other examples. So, ha'am asher baraglecha, the people who are by your feet. Now, this is interesting because it's, it's Paro talking to Moshe. And Moshe is talking about the people who are going to be leaving Egypt. So says Paro, the people who are with your feet, the people whom you want to leave Egypt, whom you want to move. So baraglecha implies not just the people with Moshe, but the people who, at least in Moshe's idea, which Paro hasn't accepted by this point, but the people who want to make a journey, who want to move. So that fits nicely with Luragli uh, being said here by um, Yaakov, from the time that I arrived, from the time that I moved from where I was and came to you. And the other quote is from Shoftim, La'am asher Baragli, 
the people who are by my feet. And again, there Rashi points out, points, points out it means haba'im in me, the people who are coming with me. So in each case, although Rashi didn't say it explicitly at the beginning, but he meant it, it's the people who've been journeying with me. Or so in this case, for Ragli, it means with my feet, i.e. when I made the journey and when I came here, that's when the bracha started. Okay, we've just got time to do the next part of Rashi on the words gam anochi lebeiti. Um, let's just quickly do the first words, letzorech beiti, for the needs of my household. What's Rashi saying? So basically Yaakov saying, I've got to look after my own family. Um, although as we'll see in a moment, he's not he's saying something a bit more precise than that. So beiti doesn't literally mean my house. It means for my family. Um, but Rashi is excluding the idea that Yaakov is saying, I'm only going to work now specifically for my house or even for my family, if we just take it figuratively, to the exclusion of doing any work for any other house. He's not excluding that because, as we will see, he's still going to carry on working for Laban in a certain way. He's just going to work for himself as well. So he is going to work, if you like, for my house and for other houses, but the work he does for other houses is is going to be for the sake, for the needs of my house. In other words, he says Rashi, he's not saying I will work only in and for my house. I will work for other houses, but I will work for other houses for the benefit of my house. That's what's added by the word And now Rashi carries on. Achshav ein osin now, nobody's working for my need except for my children. In other words, my children are doing all the work to support the family because all my work goes to support Lavan. Continues Rashi. But Sarich Ani Mihiyot Oser Gam Ani Vesomchan. And I need to work also and to support them. Vizehu Gam. And that's what's meant by Gam. Now, Rashi's actually explained two words. He spells out one, he doesn't spell out the other. The other one is Anochi. Because if he's, Yaakov is talking about himself, because obviously he's talking about when am I going to do the work? Now, in Hebrew, as we know, that the pronoun is, if you like, contained in the verb. Yadati, for instance, I know, or I knew. You don't have to say Yadati Anochi, because the T on the end of Yadati covers the Anochi. So when you do have Anochi, it's there for a particular emphasis. So why do we need the anochi? And the answer is, my children are doing all the work. I need to do some of the work with them. I need to. But what Rashi does spell out is the word gam. But uh, where the Pasuk says, Now, what else could you think gam, gam means? Gam means also. In other words, not only this, but also that. Now, you could read it as saying, you, Lavan, you're a rich man. You provide for your family. Gam anochi lebeiti. I also need to provide for my family, just like you provide for yours. But Rashi points out that's not what Yaakov is saying, and he couldn't be what Yaakov is saying, because Yaakov cannot compare himself to Lavan, because he's clearly in a different socioeconomic bracket. He's on a different social status. He's much, much lower. So he's not saying, you do this, and also I do that. Having ruled out that, what is the gum comparing him to? So Rashi gives this backstory, which isn't implicit in the Pasuk, but it has to be there for the Pasuk to make sense. Rashi is saying that Yaakov is saying, Gam, also like my children. 
my children are doing their bit, gam anochi, I also need to do it with them. And as Rashi himself says, that's the meaning of the gum. And it is now time for the end of the shir. It's time for Mariv, which is now happening next door to us. So we will stop there. And in Yitz Hashem, next week, we will continue. Okay.